and you're listening to Square One, a podcast where we interview entrepreneurs, investors, and executives at the cutting edge of business. And I'm your host, Ramin Shah. Today's guest is Ali Hamed, managing partner at CoVenture, a modern-day asset management business exploring the intersection of venture capital, credit, and cryptocurrency. While it's in vogue to talk about first principles thinking, very few in the investment industry actually adhere to it in practice. And in this episode, Ali opens up the art of the possible when you think creatively, whether it's how to structure a firm across multiple products, invest in new digital assets like Instagram accounts, or evaluate a company's progress. This one was fun and you won't want to miss it. So without further ado, Ali, welcome and thanks so much for joining us. Thanks guys for having me. Really appreciate it and looking forward to uh, kicking off the discussion. Yeah, Ali, I'm, I'm super excited to have you on the show today. You know, I think your perspective on investing and and approach to business generally is really amongst one of the most original and clear in the industry today. And, you know, I want to dive into a bunch of different topics, but, you know, let's kick off with the foundational question. Uh, you guys at CoVenture, you're in a ton of different businesses, venture, crypto, you know, lending. What's your overarching investment thesis and, and how would you describe your investment philosophy? So, you know, when we think about what kind of businesses we want to be in or the, the types of investing we want to do, um, this is going to sound super goofy, but we think about what will the great asset management firms um, look like in 20 years, and how do we start building those today? And so, you know, if you look at the uh, early 80s, private equity and levered buyouts was sort of this niche asset class, and it turned out you had these great operators building firms in what ended up being massive markets. Um, and today, we know those firms as Cerberus and Carlisle and Apollo and all the other ones. Um, and then if you look at the, you know, the 90s, or hedge funds, early 2000s, as venture capital, and we really try to say, okay, so what are those next great asset classes that are going to matter and not really be considered niche in 20 years, but are considered niche now and are a new way to invest? And let's go explore ways um, to build investment strategies uh, in those new asset classes. Uh, we primarily look for opportunities around technology companies, sort of the DNA of the firm. We started in venture. Um, and we think that technology companies are built um, very differently than companies built in the past. You know, if you think about it, uh, the great uh, sort of tech startups that we can think of in recent past, Uber is the biggest transportation startup that owns no cars. Airbnb is the biggest hospitality startup. Uh, it doesn't own any hotels. And WeWork's the biggest real estate startup and doesn't own much property. So these are asset-like businesses built very differently than they ever have built, been built in the past. And they also have been funded in a really dumb way. Right? So basically, all these companies are going from 0 to $15 billion of market value on preferred equity and convertible notes, um, which is like insane. Um, and so we said, okay, so like, if you have most of the next great companies um, being built in this sort of asset light way or this new way of ever being built uh, before, and you have the same type of, you know, very singular type of or linear type of funding, and it hasn't really become sophisticated yet, maybe that's a great opportunity. And how do we build an asset management firm that can be a part of as many you know, parts of that capital stack as possible. So talk, talk a little bit more about CoVenture, right? Because you've kind of brought this philosophy to bear through CoVenture. And, you know, your business is, is interesting, right? You're in, a, you're in a number of businesses, like we talked about, venture, crypto, lending. Talk a little bit more about, you know, CoVenture, the structure, and, and really how you came up with the concept. Um, so, so there's like the uh, well-put-together explanation, which is, you know, we always had this view that we wanted to be an active management firm that, invested in different parts of the company, and, but, but that's not the case. You know, the, well, how we started was, um, you know, my senior year in college, I, I had done a startup. I wanted to start making small angel investments 
And I realized that just investing cash into companies um, as a tiny angel who couldn't lead around uh, wasn't going to be a very good strategy. And so instead what we did um, is we got together with this you know, guy named Jamil and we started coding software for equity and startups. Uh, and so instead of getting equity for just investing cash, we took the cash we were going to invest, we hired engineers, um, we started building software. And the, the thesis was really simple. We wanted to find founders with, who were domain experts but couldn't code, so they were non-technical founders. Uh, we would invest pre-product so we could get really low valuations, but we would take post-product risks because we were helping build the technology so we didn't have the risk the product would never get launched. So we were investing in founders who knew the, the customer really well, have very low valuations, but not taking as much risk as people who normally invest in pre-product. And a few of the companies that we invested in happened to be in sort of the alternative funding space. Um, one of the businesses was trying to get employees off bi-weekly pay cycle, and another business called Curtis Pay was essentially helping farmers solve their cash flow problem midway through the harvest. Um, you know, the way Curtis Pay works is if you're a farm, you know, in Latin America, and you're in the middle of the harvest, and you send your produce to a distributor in the U.S., uh, they'll take title to the produce in real time at about 50% of its market value. Um, secured by all the other assets. Um, they have recourse to multiple parties. Um, and then at the time of the produce being sold, they'll take their principal back and then they'll sell the produce at a vid. So they'll have a markup at the actual sale of the asset. Um, and they end up having, they built this really interesting financial product um, using their technology to track the produce in real time. And so we saw that and we said, hey, actually, um, if we lent money to produce tag, so they could then finance these farmers by doing these title purchases. Um, that might be really interesting. So instead of just being their equity investor, let's also lend them money. And when we did this deal, um, we ended up sort of being able to tell pe to people in the world about it. And they, didn't, they thought we were smart just because we were associated with First Bank. And it's not that we really knew what we were doing. We just happened to stumble upon this really cool idea. Um, and over time, because we had done the Curtis Bay investment, people started sending us other types of investments as well. Um, and, and it ended up sort of developing into something that at the beginning was opportunistic. Um, and then it ended up becoming a thesis, which is, hey, you know, there's this explosion of new types of credit opportunities. If you look at version 1.0 of the lending world, it was sort of lending club, on deck, so by. And they're great businesses, but they were, what they were really doing is they were taking loans that were originated offline and them online. And instead, with these new types of credit businesses, they were inventing a new type of loan um, or inventing a new type of financial product. No one had ever tried to finance produce because you can't collect on produce because it's perishable. No one had ever tried to take employees off the bi-weekly pay cycle. No one had really tried to do uh, payroll deduction finance in the U.S. Um, no one had tried to uh, finance e-commerce returns. So we were finding all these really cool opportunities where you could get a really outsized deal, not by taking new risks, but by doing something different. And once we had been in both venture and credit, we kind of looked at ourselves and we said, what are we? Um, and we decided we didn't really want to be a venture business that happened to be able to do credit if we needed to. Um, we wanted to be that asset management business that could solve multiple problems for a company. Um, you know, we didn't want to be that investor who a te technology company would come to us and we'd say, oh, sorry, you're not going to be a billion-dollar company and we can't get the ownership we want and we can't invest in our Series A. So because you don't fit in our narrow, narrow, narrow box and because we don't think all companies will the exact same, we can't invest in you. Um, instead, we want to say, hey, what is the right way for you to build your business? And we'll figure out the right capital solution for you. And, um, and cryptocurrencies uh, and crypto assets are becoming an asset class. We've been personally invested for a while. 
um, a lot of our investors had approached us and said, hey, how about you guys um, sort of build a business around it? And so then that's how we ended up getting into crypto. Is it sort of seemed like the next obvious asset class that was going to be built on the back of technology. Yeah, it's an, it's an interesting kind of, I like the way you put it in terms of there's the well-crafted story and then there's a little bit of the kind of landing into it, um, landing into it story. Because I think, you know, there's, there's a lot of different asset classes and asset types you guys are in. And I, I actually want to dive into some of the breadth of some of the digital assets you were mentioning. You know, you've talked about previously, um, what would it be like to structure, you know, a deal if uh, someone was out there rolling up Instagram accounts or Airbnb accounts? And I want to I want to dive into that a little bit uh, more later in the podcast because I think that's super interesting. But yeah, let's, I'll, add, I'll yeah. add one more uh, Spotify playlist. Interesting. That's like my new idea. Spotify playlist. Okay, like, interesting. Uh, so cool. I, had, I have no idea who the person who runs Rap Caviar is, but there's like, they're probably like the kingpin of the rap industry now. <laughs> interesting. I no, I think it's. I, I'm super fascinated. We'll dig into it. I'm super fascinated by it because I think it's just. It's very interesting. You know, a. It's. I think it's a great example of just thinking from first principles. But B. I think it's actually pretty interesting when you have. A pretty strong tech underlayer. You're very wide in terms of the types of things you're looking at. I think it, it develops into a pretty, pretty interesting kind of aggregator business with with a strong moat. Um, but before we dive into that side, let's let's talk a little bit about what's going on in venture today. Um, I think you you have a pretty interesting take on you know the two relatively uncontroversial statements in venture um, that folks typically abide by, uh, but don't gel with one another, which is, you know, one is, you know, you should stick to your stage. That's, that's starting to become kind of industry parlance. And then the second is, you know, you should be contrarian, um, you know, but correct, right. Which everybody agrees with, which is kind of not contrarian. Uh, but you, you kind of posit this argument that those, those two statements don't really gel with one another. Break, break that down, break your thinking down there. Yeah, so to, to repeat you a little bit, there's two statements that everyone in the world agrees with, and the two statements don't agree with each other. The first is stick to your knitting. If you're a seed stage investor, stick to being seed stage. If you're a Series A investor, stick to being Series A. And everyone sort of agrees. The second thing they say is to make money, you have to have a contrarian view where everyone else in the world thinks you're wrong, or at least most people think you're wrong, um, and you're actually right. And the problem with that is if you only do seed stage investing, and you invest in an idea that is contrarian, by definition, that makes it very hard to find a Series A investor to agree with you and then follow on to the deal. Now, um, and, and what that's done is it's really turned seed investors into 12-month thinkers. You know, and you, you, we listen to most seed investors blog and tweet and talk out loud, and they say, oh, we have this long-term view, when we make an investment, we plan on being with you for the next 7 to 10 to 20 years because that was public. Um, and it's just BS, right? What they're going to do is they're going to work with you for 12 months and then immediately start communicating your pitch deck with you and try to help you raise money. And then what they're then going to do is go tell their LPs, I'm a good investor because Sequoia backed the company I just invested in. Um, so it's like this signal on BD business. So, so there's a bunch of problems. One, um, seed stage investing has just become a business development business. And it's why, you know, the people who get back to these seed funds and even the way LPs underwrite them is like, who are the most connected people because they have interesting deal flow? And then they'll be really good at helping their companies raise follow on that. There's no, like, no LP has ever, like, talked to a seed investor and backed them because they said, wow, I, I listened very closely to their thesis around that one company. I looked at their investment memo, and it turned out that the underlying KPIs of the business played out the way that the seed investor told me they were going to play out, and that's why they made the prorata decision. Like, that conversation has not happened. And then the second thing seed investors are doing is they're basically saying, oh, what does Bessemer want to do? What does Excel want to do? What does NEA want to do? What are the other types of companies are backing? Great, I'll go try to find the best um, entrepreneur in that space, back 
them, and that way I can flip it 12 months later. And as soon as that deal is uh, flipped to the Series A investor, the seed investor may not have a board seat, they may be a board server, but they stop paying attention as much, and they kind of out of the, the, the um, company's um, sort of line of sight. And then beyond that, what they do is they take, they take their pro rata um, to be supportive. That's their thesis. You say, hey, why did you do your pro rata? Well, I wanted to be supportive of the company. They're not like even re-underwriting the business. And so it's just this like 12-month BD cycle. And to, you know, I think that's just a cheap way to call yourself an investor. And so you know, what we've sort of been taking the view of is if you back a company, you're going to say you take a long-term view. Take the long-term view. If you're going to invest, re-underwrite their pro rata. By the way, if you like it, try to get as much as you can. Um, if, if, you know, so um, maybe lead two rounds in a row. Right? Like the most proprietary deal flow in the world is the deal flow already in your portfolio. So why is it that you're basically buying equity and then 12 months later, later becoming, um, at, you know, at best net neutral and at worst a net seller? Um, it just doesn't make sense to us. Yeah, I think it's it's I, I I really like your framing on it because I think one of the one of the nuances you pointed to is again this kind of first principles type thinking and investing. I think one of the problems that's happening today, and I and I want to get your perspective on this, but I think one of the problems that's happening today is um, you, you've got a ton of you've got a ton of knowledge out there on early stage startups, right? Which is great, right? You have a lot of people not making the same mistakes, you know, as people used to. People are getting out of the gate with a stronger foundation. But I think the byproduct actually that I've observed on the investor side is almost this obsession with pattern recognition, right? You've got, you know, tons of kind of medium posts up where venture guys are basically saying, you know, this is the exact framework of, you know, how much MRR you need, how much month over month growth you need, et cetera. And, and that's the stage that it dictates that you're in. And it just feels like a giant fallacy in second order observation. Um, and, you know, last year I had Andy Ratcliffe on the show and you know, he's obsessed with this kind of value versus growth hypothesis dynamic, right? And basically his push is, you know, regardless of, you know, your early stage traction, um, if you, you got to know what game you're playing, you're either in the value hypothesis stage or in the growth hypothesis stage. And that doesn't gel very cleanly with if you have, you know, X million dollars in ARR, you're in this stage of investing. You know, how do you, how do you think about kind of that phenomenon when, when you evaluate companies and you invest? Yeah. So, you know, it's, uh, it's funny, and, you know, we bring that Andy Radcliffe thing up a bunch. Um, so, so there's a bunch of myths that VCs, or not even myths, there's like a bunch of generalizations that VCs say, and, and it's part of that, like, um, you remember when like, everyone was reading those daily newsletters that were aggregating blogs? Yep. Um, and you have all these VCs say, hey, you have to hit 30K of MRR and 15% month-over-month growth rates or seed round. You have to hit $100,000 of MRR and like 10 to 20% growth to raise your Series A. Um, here's like what multiples everyone trades at. And by the way, when you raise around a financing, you should raise 18 months worth of financing. So let's go backwards. So first of all, raising 18 months of financing might make sense. And it, it might actually make sense for a VC to say, on average, the amount of time that you might want to give yourself in runway is 18 months. Um, and it gives you a year to be heads down and then six months to go fundraise. But if you're building like a capital-intensive business, or if you're doing uh, building a business that has a long tail, uh, sales cycle, or if you're building a business where you don't yet have product market fit, um, and you need to like keep your burn really, really low until you actually have product market fit, like this whole 18 months for every company thing, like all, like I, I think that was one of the um, the great tragedies of people writing like a, a sort of good idea that then got applied to every other company. Um, you know, the thirty thousand dollars of MRR. 
I don't know what that means. Like, do you have one customer at $30,000? Do you have 15 customers? And by the way, if someone's paying you, does that really mean that they actually are creating, accruing value? Um, and by the way, how are you looking to revenue? Right? So there's so many nuances within that. You know, the thing that Andrew Radcliffe was um, kind of pointing to uh, is something that we point to a lot, and it's basically as follows. You know, when you, when you, the, the stages of a company, the earlier stages, first you're trying to figure out if you can build a product or not. And that's gotten a lot easier. Kind of everyone can build a product now. The second is um, figuring out, is this valuable to anybody? Not will somebody pay for it, but is it valuable? I was reading the book Atomic Habits uh, a week and a half ago, um, and I like, almost fell out of my chair because in the book, the guy gave the exact same analogy I give. But the analogy is as follows. Um, if I'm at a restaurant and you and I are getting lunch and we get our food and the food sucks, we still pay the bill. Um, because it's very awkward not to, and if you decided not to pay your side of the bill, then I would have to pay it, because that would just be super weird of you. Um, the, the KPI is like, did we tip well? Did we eat everything on our plate? Did we take something home? Did we come back? And so, you know, when you first get capital for a business, you want to figure out how valuable the thing is for the company, or for your customer. You have no idea how to price it until you know how valuable it is. And then, by the way, if you try growing before you know your value hypothesis, here's what happens. You take the money you just raised, you invest it in marketing channels, but you don't know if those marketing channels are affordable or not. Or not. What if you, you know, I gave you a new company and I told you that their average cost of acquiring a customer was $1,000, but I didn't tell you what the potential LTV was going to be? That wouldn't tell you anything. You'd have no idea if it was a good company or not. Hey, I have a company for you. It's growing at 20% month over month, and it costs them $1,000 to acquire customers. Great. How much do they make on them? $10. Okay, that doesn't seem like a very good business. And so the fact that people try to solve too many problems at once instead of first going product and then customer value, sometimes you don't even need the product, um, and then whether or not I can acquire customers at an affordable rate and what's my payback period, et cetera, to make sure it's capital efficient or equity efficient. And then third, um, do these channels scale, you know, they have to happen one after the other. Um, and then by the way, if it doesn't, it, it, scale isn't a binary thing. It's not like it, it either scaled or it didn't scale. It's to what degree does it scale? And with scaling like bananas and raise as much capital as you can and put as much preferred equity on top of you as you can because who cares? If it's kind of scaling, maybe you just build a 40, $50 million business and the worst thing you could do is put $20 million on top of you that feels essentially like debt capital, and now you just hijack half your wealth, right? So I think that, um, to your, you know, to the point we're trying to bring up, people try to solve too many things at once um, and raise capital to solve multiple hypotheses. But when you raise capital to solve multiple hypotheses, um, you end up often raising the wrong type and putting so much capital on top of you with semi-liquidation preferences, it becomes depressing to try to one day work yourself out of it. Yeah, it's almost it's almost this like meta question too of um of 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 what business are venture folks actually in? And these days, as you know, as as the round sizes get bigger and bigger, as the funds are getting bigger and bigger, there's there's this question where my mind goes, which is, you know, are are venture folks playing the fees game, or are they actually playing the return kind of long term investing game, right? Because if you're playing the fees game, then as an entrepreneur, you're basically orienting the way that you build your business around getting financing, right? You're pre- you're basically building in a way that's predicated on raising raising money. But if the venture guys are playing more of a fee game versus an actual long-term interest game, right? Then you get into these you get into this like weird incentive alignment issue where it is about, you know, every 18 months 
raising the next round so that the earlier stage investor can show a markup to their LPs, right, et cetera, et cetera, and then can raise more funds off of that, right? So, so, so people like to use this pejorative, like um, they're playing a fees game, they're just trying to raise assets, they yeah. come off the management fee, not the carry. And I don't think it's that simple. You know, I think, look, if you're, if you're raising a $50 million fund, you have to believe that you're going to return some crazy multiple on the fund. If, if you think you're an amazing investor, you have to believe that you're going to return some crazy multiple on it. Um, because otherwise, like you're raising such a small amount of money, it wouldn't be worth it otherwise. But, you know, I think people have all kinds of motivations. In some cases, the people who are building these VC firms are entrepreneurs. Like, you know, Mark Andreessen built the first, you know, the web browser. But he probably just wants to build a really good business. And, you know, I don't think that he should be faulted for building a really big fund. And by the way, he shouldn't be expected to five times his fund. He should be expected to like two times his fund. Yep. And by the way, he's providing a different type of service. So if I'm GIC, I would much rather deploy $200 million into a fund that will return two times than $20 million into a fund that will return four times. Like, so he just has a different customer base. Yep. And so basically we have a bunch of uh, people doing is you have like a manager of a seed stage fund who's primarily taking capital from family offices who are happy to deploy $5 million and looking at Mark Andreessen just being pissed off that he's playing a different game than they are, even though, you know, it's just a different game. It's not a worse game or a better game. And so I, I, I do struggle a little bit with um, this term of like, he's just chasing fees or um, any big, and I'm using, I don't know why I'm using him because I guess because he's a great entrepreneur, but, um, you know, any, any, um, well-known founder of VC firm, like what if they just wanted to build a really big business and they were on the, uh, they were on the pursuit of importance, not fees. And here's what I mean by importance. So somebody wants to ask me like, why do I like investing? And the reason I gave them is investing is the best business, the best profession in the world. Uh, if you want to operate at scale. So here's what I mean. Let's imagine you and I, uh, I, I I'm selling clothes to you. Um, and you come into the shop and I sell you a t-shirt. You're happy because I give you a t-shirt, you gave me money, and I'm happy because I got the money. You know, this is a one-to-one relationship, which is great. Now, let's imagine I teach a class, like I'm a professor. Um, I might have 100 students in my class. So every time I get up on that stand, I'm creating 100 hours of time with my one hour. And it's important that I make it a class because if I don't make it a class, 100 people just wasted an hour. Um, That's kind of cool. Now, I write a lot of code. And a thousand people use the app. That's amazing too, because I spent you know an hour writing this app, and now thousands of people are using it. I spent one hour creating thousands of hours. If I'm allocating capital to people who then write code, that is the most at scale thing I can be doing, and it's an incredibly fulfilling thing to be able to show up every day and be like, shit. If I didn't show up, um, an entrepreneur who may not get funded and may not be able to hire people, may not be able to get people to use their thing, like it may not happen. And there's like a certain feeling of fulfillment. I think the people who are building bigger firms, like, I don't know that they're just trying to chase fees. Like, what if they actually just like being able to deploy more capital because it gives them more feeling of sense and purpose? Um, so, I don't know. I just I think it's important that we move away from this, like, oh, somebody's making their firm bigger. They must be a jerk. No, I like I like your framing a lot um, because I think I think there's a little bit of cynicism that's attached with the, with the underlying assumption, right, that it's all about fees. But you're completely right, right, which is from the perspective that, um, especially when I think you look at the funds that are started by, um, entrepreneurs and even even a lot of the micro funds these days, right? A lot of the micro funds these days are people that are ex, you know, Uber, Airbnb, whatever it is. They've had a good liquidity event, and they're operators, entrepreneurs, etc. At heart, um, and 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 they're investing an amount. Um, so I, I think it's it's fair to fair to graph it the way you did. I think it's also fair 
uh, to say that it's a different product, right? Like you're, if you're investing in, you know, Andreessen and they're, you know, returning 2x, well, then they're able to come in and, you know, value the business much higher if it assures them winning the deal because they're trying to return 2x, right? And you can make the... Yeah, and, and, and the game they're playing. So, like, I think it would just be better if everyone, uh, you know, all these big funds are just kind of calling out the game they're playing. Yep. Which is, if you're a billion-dollar fund, you're not trying to 30x or $5 million investment. Totally. You're trying to get a toehold into a business that you can keep deploying more money in over time. And so these firms are just growth equity firms that are using their Series A practice as a toehold to try to get to a business that, sure, will hopefully that on that Series A $5 million investment return three times. But all they really want to do is return you know, six to ten times on their weighted average cost of investment and make sure that a significant amount of their NAV went into the deal such that they can ultimately return two times on their fund. And what's annoying for seed investors when you're competing with a firm like that or a firm that only does Series A when you're competing with a firm like that is you're playing different games because you sold different things to your clients. You know, again, the $300 million fund that sold a four-times return to their clients is competing with a billion-dollar fund that sold a two-times return to their clients. And it's natural that they're annoyed that they're both competing on the same deal with the goal of providing different outcomes. And the entrepreneur, you know, has their own competing choice. They can either work with a smaller firm who you know, is going to really, really care about me because, you know, if they make a $5 million investment, that's meaningful to them. Um, and even if I end up having a mediocre outcome, they're still going to care a lot because they need to, you know, get every juice, you know, get, get the juice out of every single deal. Um, whereas a bigger fund, you know, they, um, they might give me a higher valuation because they can afford to because their cost of capital is cheaper and, you know, they could be my only funding source. So it, it's not that one's worse or one's better. It's just understand what game you're playing. It's like people, you know, um, just recognizing that. It's why I think the labeling in venture of a top quartile fund is a 3x return or 4x return, whatever the stats are these days, is a huge kind of red herring, right? Because yeah, you're, I, I think it's a, it's a joke. Exactly. Like you're you're just playing a, you're playing a different game. I wanna I wanna dive I wanna I wanna jump a little bit off this topic though and dive into something that you were you were hinting at or alluding at a little bit earlier which is kind of this notion of, you know, historically how these businesses have been funded, right? You, you wrote a post yesterday on the nuance between capital efficiency and equity efficiency in terms of businesses. And it's kind of like the way you think about stages of investing, right? Which is capital efficient is kind of the second order observation on what folks really desire of, out of fast growth companies. So talk a little bit more about that nuance and, and what you meant bet- between the difference of capital efficiency and equity efficiency. Yeah, so... Um... A lot of VCs will, you know, if they, if they kind of think of themselves as sophisticated individuals, will say the following. We invest in capital-efficient software uh, companies, and we love, you know, software because, you know, the margins are so high, and you don't have to invest a lot of money, but you can create this great enterprise and everything else. Um, and so, you know, the way that ends up translating is a lot of venture capitalists will turn down, you know, either hardware companies that might require a lot of capital or a biotech company that might require a lot of experimentation. The other type of company, you know, and, and they can't invest in these book companies that are capital intensive or at least equity intensive um, because if you're only a $100 million fund, you can't put $30 million of your fund into backing a deal as an experiment. Um, and the, the other type of capital inefficient or equity inefficient business um, that people avoid is companies with long payback periods. So, you know, let's again go to a software company and you know, I can spend for every dollar of marketing I spend, I acquire a customer that worth ten dollars. Sounds good so far, but if it takes me a hundred years to go get that ten dollars, then I'm gonna, you know, that's a really dilutive company, 
because I'm going to have to keep um, putting equity capital into the business to keep funding its operations because it's going to take so long for me to actually get paid back and then recycle those revenue dollars into the business, right? And so a lot of times people will say, hey, companies with a lot of experimentation or a lot of upfront costs or who are buying brick and mortars or buying expensive assets or have long payback periods are capital inefficient. They're capital intensive. And I think that we're going to, you know, what they really mean to say is, like uh, you mentioned, um, they, they're saying they're not equity efficient. Right, and so basically, they need to, if they invest that dollar and buy a percent of the company, they need to make sure that they don't get that down to like 0.1% of the company later. And I think as the capital markets and as the capital stacks of these software companies become more sophisticated over time, we'll move from saying capital efficient to equity efficient. So I think there are capital intensive businesses that still might be equity efficient, and that a VC firm, even if it's a small VC firm, could still invest in if the other capital required wasn't dilutive equity capital. So here's an example. Let's imagine I was building the next co-living space or the next um, co-working space building. I could take a little bit of equity capital and use it to fund operations, but then I could use debt capital to purchase all the properties and the assets. Um, let's imagine I was building a SaaS company with a really long payback period. Let's imagine it took, you know, for every dollar I put in the ground, I would get $5 back, but it might take me two years. Well, I could then say, hey, you know, uh, I could go to Mr. or Mrs. Lender and say, I now have a thousand clients um, over the last two years. I've had 2% churn. So if I, if, you know, you should consider my churn my default rate and you should lend against that future revenue with a default rate similar to what my churn number is. Uh, and so what you can do is you can use equity capital to fund the initial operation of the business, but then lever up that future recurring revenue so that you don't care as much about your payback period and you can extend payback periods from six months to 18 months to 36 months even, depending on the margin of the business. Um, and you're already starting to see that in e-commerce. So, you know, there's a business called ClearBank. Um, and, you know, it, it was announced uh, that we're invested, so it's obviously not super biased. But basically what they do is they find e-commerce businesses that know how much um, it costs them to acquire a customer compared to how much they'll make. And they say, hey, you know, we'll give you a prepaid Facebook card. That way you don't have to use your expensive equity capital to fund customer acquisition. Instead, you can lever up your customer acquisition. And so all of a sudden, these businesses that before might have required $100 of equity capital, even if they still require $100 of total capital to operate, now are only requiring $25 of equity capital. And so they are capital intensive, but equity efficient. And so that is why I said venture capitalists, even though they need to invest in equity efficient businesses, don't need to invest in capital efficient businesses. It's not the same thing. And so where do you do you where do you see the I'm curious where you see the innovation, right? So PEs obviously leverage buyouts have been doing this, you know, since kind of the beginning of time. Do you start to do you do you think that what will end up happening is venture firms will start um, let me take a step back. Do you think founders will start kind of participating or partnering with venture firms for a certain part of the financing life cycle and then use the clear banks, et cetera, of the world for other pieces of the life cycle? Because as a venture investor, you kind of have a, you almost have a perverse incentive to say, I want to continue to fund that customer acquisition cost, et cetera, even if it's not completely uh, efficient from a capital perspective, because it allows me to continue to maintain you know, more and more ownership of the business. I think that, you know, probably what will happen is in the next few years, you'll have sort of these 
entrepreneurial and novel types of investors like a clear bank or like a circle up or you know like a lighter capital or a staff like any of these businesses that are saying hey here's a new way or in, in dvc all these people who yep. are saying hey here's a new way to think about investing um and here's a new type of capital that you can take um and they'll sort of be bespoke a niche um but then ultimately what will happen is either the large asset management firms like you know these uh the Sequoias or the NEAs or the Lightspeeds, and I call them asset management firms on purpose because that's what they are, um, they'll either do it themselves or they'll purchase these companies. You know, so if you, again, take like the, you know, private equity analogy, what you had is these firms that built really, really good track records in a core asset class. And so they had a really high quality relationship with their clients, but they had raised funds in their main asset class that was so big that they couldn't keep taking more money into that fund because it would get too big. The market opportunity wasn't there anymore. And so they said, well, we already have these relationships with these clients. Why don't we do direct lending? You know, why don't we do uh, real estate? Why don't we do a hedge fund? And so we go, and then, you know, you could take the Blackstone model where, like, they bought GSO, or you could take the, hey, we're going to build it ourselves and do it ourselves. And, you know, what happens in great strategic M&A is uh, one company will realize that they could increase the margins of another business um, if they acquire that new business. Um, one way to increase margins is to be able to either tap out on higher fees or acquire lower cost advancing. So let's imagine, you know, um, NEA, and I have no idea, you know, what, what they tell their LPs. So I'm using a firm that I don't really know as well on purpose. Um, let's imagine NEA can say, hey, you know, we only require a two times return on our fund, which shows that we have a low cost of capital relative to other VC firms. Um, we see this business, you know, we see a company lending to startups and earning an 18% annualized return. I bet you if we went out to our LP base, they would only require an 11% annualized return. If we bought this lender and put them under the NEA umbrella, it would be more valuable to NEA than they are on their own. So I wouldn't be surprised if you ended up seeing these VC firms turn themselves into asset managers, much like private equity firms turn themselves into asset managers, and then finding things. And they, by the way, said, oh, we have all this deal flow already. You know, there, there's a lot of synergy. So I wouldn't be totally shocked if over, you know, in the next three years, it was sort of this bespoke one-off new firms being built. And then once the asset class has started getting proven, um, some M&A happened in the space. Yeah, that's interesting. I think it makes complete sense, right? Because then it's like, why, why allow, basically why allow for that financing activity to go outside of your house if that becomes the norm kind of practice or activity for founders anyways? Why not bring it inside? Mm-hmm. Um, let's talk a little bit. Let's talk a little bit about uh, product conviction. You, you've got this frame. I'll give you a few reasons. First of all, yeah. complex, right? So, you know, if you're, mm, okay. if you're in the equity of a company, and then you also start lending to the business, and you don't have the exact same LPs funding both of those funds. So let's imagine. Got to keep using names because every time I use the name of a firm, I think of the person there who's going to like call me. Like, why use this as the example? Um, but let's imagine you had you know X, Y, and Z billion dollar fund. And they stacked the uh, equity of a company out of their VC fund, but they had a separate fund with separate LPs who financed the debt. Um, what happens if that company defaults on the loan? Does the lending fund foreclose on the business and hurt the equity investors, or do they try to find a way to amicably work it out, which in a way might actually make the return worse for the debt investors? So you have a conflict. So that'll be the reason that these uh, VC firms don't do the M&A quickly. They're going to have to pause, and the opportunity is going to have to obviously be big enough where they're willing to deal with that conflict, which you can do with the conflict maze and everything else, but it's going to be a little bit of why it doesn't happen as quickly as it otherwise would. That's fair. I, I think you'd have to start structuring 
<clears throat> you'd have to start structuring like the sophisticated asset managers in the space, right? You'd have to start having Chinese walls, et cetera, right? And and you'd probably you'd probably start seeing exactly, exactly. Um, interesting. So we'll we'll keep a we'll keep a watch out on on that space. Let's let's talk about product conviction a little bit. You've got a framework uh, on judgment and empathy at the core of product creation that I really like. I, I think you've put it very well. Um, and I I also think your framework kind of applied to companies has pretty deep uh, predictive implications for you know successes of founding teams also. So talk a little bit more about that framework and you know why you think empathy matters so much at the core of product creation and you know maybe what you know a Silicon Valley or New York or you know in your observation kind of key companies are in in these different geographies are doing well or you know are getting wrong. So it's it's funny. Um, I wrote the blog post, but really the person who came out with that idea was a guy named Jesse B. Rudy at IA Ventures, who I think we're like an endurance, and I was explaining sort of part of our thesis, and he's like, and he framed it as like kind of judgment versus empathy, and I was like, oh, it's amazing, I'm totally going to write that. <laughs> um, so he deserves all the credit for it. But, but the idea was, you know, when we first started backing founders who maybe weren't technical, but had worked in the industries they were going after, um, we found this really amazing thing, which is when they built a product, uh, they built it with this incredible understanding of the customer. You know, often in Silicon Valley, and basically all my best friends live in the Bay Area, so this isn't like a, a total diss, but there is this like level of like, all right, we're all, we, we all live in the Bay Area, we're all really, really smart, we all went to these great schools, and we're all building tech companies, and obviously all of our tech companies are going to be worth a billion dollars because they're not worth a billion dollars and they're useless to start anyway. And so, you know, we're going to go build a company. And we're going to look at how the rest of the world operates. And, you know, some of the rest of the world votes in it for a different party than we do, so they're obviously stupid. And let's take all the stupid things that they do and then build apps to make them more efficient and better. And you end up, like, with these apps that make total, total sense for anybody who's outside of the industry um, but can't relate to anybody who's actually in the industry. You know, if you look at how a hospital's run, um, you sit there and you think, man, why do they do the, the medical bill in the way they do? Why don't they actually collect on any of the receivables from patients who could probably pay if they knew how to service the receivables? Why don't they, you know, why do they take so long to make decisions? Why don't they use better software? And the truth is, the people who run hospitals are fucking doctors, right? Like, they're smart people. And there's a reason the systems ended up being the way they are. And they're not perfect, and they have all this legacy stuff and all these politics and all these reasons that they ought to be better. And they're big bureaucratic institutions. And, of course, there's a lot to be said for them you know, that, that slows things down, maybe um, in a way they shouldn't. But, you know, if you're, you know, you come from the hospital administration world, you might be able to have a conversation with a person that's a lot more nuanced. And that empathy is a really important thing. You know, if you're sitting there and you're an engineer and you're listening to this, you know within 30 seconds that someone's an engineer. And, you know, 30 seconds when you start talking about tools and the technologies and, you know, your work style, um, you know, you can have that conversation that gives credibility. Um, if you work in sales and you talk to another salesperson, you know everything about sales. You know what works on LinkedIn, what doesn't work on LinkedIn. You know how your boss uses CRM and how you think they should use it better. You know how annoying it is, you know, trying to port over information from one device to the next. You know, like, so, um, and by the way, if you're in venture capital, like, you can talk about every founder who comes to you too late when they're trying to raise capital and, you know, every founder who doesn't do their reporting the right way. That, that empathy is an incredibly, incredibly important part when you're trying to build a business. And it gets lost when you you're building something uh, for when you're you would never be the customer yourself, and so that was a huge part of you know why when we back a business we want to understand does this 
does this, did this founder read about the industry and do a great case study and thesis on it in business school, or did they actually live and breathe it? Yeah, I, re I really like the framing a lot because it's something that, um, you know, being a, being a consultant at McKinsey, it's something that when I read your post, it really, it kind of fit at the core, which is I, I think a lot of times the really good consultants that go in work with organizations in which they can partner and leverage, really, it's really a partnership, right, and can really leverage a lot of the industry expertise and the know-how that's in the business. And I think, you know, consultants, advisors, any types of advisors, right, whether it's bankers, whomever, lawyers, uh, but folks that go in and kind of have this preconceived notion of, you know, I've gone to the, I've gone to the best schools. I'm the smartest person. This is the way you do things. You know, you're not doing it this way, so it must be wrong. You carry a deep judgment, um, which you know, oftentimes is actually very, very incorrect, um, and doesn't ever really give you a shot at, at, at looking at the problem from a from a holistic perspective. So I, I like I like your framing a lot, and I think it I think it applies to you know product creation. I think it applies to product scaling, business scaling. Uh, but I think it actually applies very much so to any sort of outside application in, in, in general. So I, I like the framing a lot. Talk a little bit more about, you know, we, we touched on this much earlier. This is the Spotify playlist idea. I want to get back to this. Talk a little bit more about how you think about some of these kind of unique digital assets, right? You've, you've talked even on other podcasts, you've written about broadening the imagination and just investing in assets people don't really know how to value today, right? So Airbnb accounts, Instagram accounts, Spotify accounts. Expand on that idea a little bit more. So, you know, we think of the world like everything's an asset and, you know, lending uh, specifically or asset-backed lending specifically has been pretty, uh, like, boring. You know, you, you lend again. Like, the, the most creative thing that, you know, most asset-backed lenders will tell you is like, they're like, oh, I want to do aircraft leasing. You know, but other than that, it's like, you know, it's a consumer, unsecured consumer loans, mortgage loans, it's auto loans, it's subprime auto loans. And we look at the world and I'm like, every day I'm outside, I'm like, look at all these assets. You know, how can I fund them? What has cash flow? Um, and, you know, even when I'm like, and assets don't have to be necessarily hard assets. And so, you know, you mentioned Instagram accounts and I've talked about that in the past. Like an Instagram account is a new version of a media business. Right. And you should, by the way, like for anyone who's listening as an investor, an operator uh, in the media space, and they post views on Instagram, like the numbers are mind-boggling how many views these companies are getting um, by only having an Instagram channel. And then the next media businesses, and by the way, those are like those are properties. And so why hasn't anyone done a roll-up of Instagram accounts and then tried to scale their sales operations? Um, the same is true for Airbnb accounts. So, you know, the people running Airbnb accounts is not like, you know, the, the yuppie who lives in Seattle who's looking for an alternative income stream by renting out their other apartment, uh, other apartment or other bedroom. These are people who have tens to maybe hundreds of properties that they're leasing and then putting them on an Airbnb and taking a spread. And, and you know, they're, they're real enterprises. And so they've now built something. Their, their Airbnb account has equity value. It's like an actual thing that has cash flows every month and every year. And these cash flows can be the millions of dollars. Yet, can you imagine building a business that you're making $3 million a year on and you can't sell to anybody, right? That's crazy. Um, you know, you might have built something with $20 million in enterprise value and all of a sudden, you know, it goes poof as soon as you shut down your account because nobody can. And, and by the way, your business has um, doors to entry. You now have great reviews. You come up really high on the page. Um, you know, you have figured out how to build your management company. You probably have employees. You probably have locked in really attractive leases. Yet that is a business that still can't be underwritten. You know, the other one, you know, the Spotify accounts. Like, 
you know, I listen to, I'm not going to tell you what I listen to because I have the worst taste in music of all time. <laughs> um, I mean, I grew up going to work tour twice a year to give you an idea, right? But like these are playlists who I discover the next artists have become my favorites on these playlists. And they're not all sponsored by Spot or, or provided by Spotify. Can you imagine being the person who runs a really, like a, a playlist with hundreds of thousands or millions of followers? How often you're probably hit up by like the next great artist who's saying, hey, include me on your playlist? Probably all the time. Do you charge them? I don't think Spotify allows you, but maybe, like, but, but people are doing it anyway. I'm sure that'll turn into an industry. So what are the things that you're using that may not be hard assets, but will be assets later? The cash flows of a SaaS company are another example, right? Like, you know, if, if I have a cohort of 100 customers, and I know that 100 customers will pay me a dollar a year, and I know that I'm going to have anywhere between 2 and 8% churn, you know, you can fund at least 60 to 70 to $80 of that um, and then get a reasonable yield. So... Um, you know, we're looking at not just assets that everyone's been talking about forever, but the assets that um, you know are new and and but still have that significant cash flow diversification and uh, liquidity that you would want in any other underwriting. It makes you more defensible as an investor. So if you're doing auto lending, you know banks will eventually get into it because they're allowed to because they can use um, their capital to do so. Regulators aren't going to let them do something new and interesting because the regulators don't feel like they know how to regulate it. And so obviously the banks must not know how to underwrite it. You know, the regulators think the banks are only as smart as they are. So, um, which probably is true, right? So um, it's also about what is the sensibility of your yield when you're looking at those types of assets. Yeah, it's interesting because I, you know, as I've started, uh, as I started this podcast, I, I didn't really have the intent or the thought process, some of that thought process that you've laid out in mind. But the more I've actually learned about this space, the more I, the more confident I am, and the more I'm waiting to just open Twitter up one day and literally see a business that's been funded rolling up podcasts, right? Doing, you're seeing all these kind of service providers come into the space, etc. But I think there's a huge opportunity to start taking the viewership, right, listeners, etc. And start structuring it into into something interesting. When you you know when you think of the Airbnb example, to me is the most analogous to a quote. I don't want to say a quote unquote real business, but I think you can you can kind of see the piece of you know you could take properties. They're kind of independent of their owners in some respect. You can scale a sales force, etc. How do you think about kind of the economics, governance, kind of structuring part of something like Instagram accounts, right? Because so much of that is tied probably to the actual individual themselves. Yeah, so I think, look, the, um, you know, one of the things you're probably leading to is I've talked a lot about governance and economics not needing to be similar, um, or at least not needing to be the same. And so I think, you know, you just don't take the exact same approach that you take in every other business. There's, you know, I think that people have the temptation to say, hey, what's working? One acquisition, and now we have this brand new universe, let's just take the old docs and use them there and use them for something else. But you have to be really mindful, like, these are brand new artists and talents, and um, you know, you have to have, maybe you say, hey, look, um, I'm going to make you an acquisition. I'm going to own X percent of the economics, but you still have governance over the creative, right? But it wouldn't be that dissimilar from even investing in asset manager, right? You might say, hey, look, if I'm going to invest in a firm where there's a, a key investor on the team, and that key investor seems to be the most important part of the whole thing, and without them, I don't think you know, the firm will work, then you, you might you know, purchase a majority of the economics of the asset management firm. Um, but then after that, it's just having minority protection. It's having minority governance rights. It's having a veto on certain decisions. It's probably very similar to when AMG buys asset managers. You know, AMG is this awesome company that I didn't even know of, um, until a year ago, 
and most people I talk to don't know of. And it's like a $13 billion market cap company that owns many of the asset managers that you know the brand names of. You know, and, and it's probably very, you know, I'd go to them and say, how do you structure your deals? Um, how do you deal with the economics? How do you deal with the compensation of your people? How do you deal with allowing the person to have their creative freedom to continue performing the magic that they're performing, which is generating the returns, or in Instagram accounts, you know, you know allow, I saw a meme, uh, uh, how is it that Donald Trump says he's so rich, but he never wears AirPods? I thought that was like the funniest <laughs> thing ever, right? Um, the, uh, how, do you, how do you keep it regardless of your problem? How do you um, capture that magic? Um, and, and but still perform an acquisition uh, and just take creativity. Yeah, it's really interesting. Well, Ali, as we as we kind of round out with you know with the last question and round out the conversation, I'm curious. You know, is there is there anything particular you're most excited about in 2019? Is it a new? You know, I think the cliche kind of way to ask the question is: Is it a new technology? Is it a new industry? But I think in your case, is it a new asset type? I the things that I'm starting to look a lot at are around companies that would be public if people still went public and how would they be financed today if it wasn't just your preferred equity and what are all the financial products that you can offer to the employees of those private companies um you know there's a, a business called SecFi that uh we have a, a small equity investment and they basically you know, they help employees figure out how to exercise their options before the company goes public um, and they do so long enough where they take capital gain instead of ordinary income at the IPO event, right? Like, what are all the new financial products that these people who are equity rich but cash poor? Um, and now that equity went from being, like, funny money and, like, they were equity rich because they own $20 million of stock in a $200 million business to, like, no, they own $5 million of stock in a $14 billion company. It's a real it's, – it's actual real net worth. Um, and, they, you know, they can't afford to put their kid through private school. Um, you know, so what are all the things that are happening in that gap between these companies used to be public and now they're not? The other idea is, okay, so, you know, what if there's a concept of a quasi-public company where, you know, it's, we've now gotten to the point where secondary offers or tender offers or anything else is becoming so common that, you know, I know the order of magnitude of secondaries that I see today compared to four years ago is like massive. You know, what is the better way of dealing with that? Um, so we are definitely looking hard at, uh, that space. And then the other is this equity efficient versus capital efficient business. How do we take companies that would not be able to be funded by venture capitalists because they require too much total capital, but if some of the capital was structured in a way that part of it was debt and it was on future earnings that you could predict, um, is there a way to finance those businesses? Ollie, this was this was a bunch of fun and, and just a really really interesting conversation. Um, so I, I genuinely enjoyed it. You know, thanks thanks so much for taking the time. Yeah, thank you, um, and, and really appreciate it. And um, you know, I'm, I'm re- really easy to reach if anyone's trying to reach me. I don't really, you know, I don't have any hobbies or anything. My email is just <laughs> my first name at you know, co-venture.bc. I respond to everything. So yeah, I'm happy to talk to anyone who has a good idea.